0: Chapter 7 of the Vikings by Alan Maurer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kevin Johnson. Chapter 7 The Vikings in Baltic Lands and Russia. The activities of the Northmen during the Viking Age were not confined to the lands west and south of their original homes. The Baltic was as familiar to them as the North Sea. To go East Viking was almost as common as to go West Viking, and Scandinavian settlements were founded on the shores of the Baltic and far inland along the great waterways leading into the heart of Russia. As was to be expected from their geographical position, it was the Danes and Swedes, rather than Norwegians, who were active in Baltic lands, the Danes settling chiefly on the Pomeranian coast among the Wends, while the Swedes occupied lands further east and founded the Scandinavian kingdom of Russia. Already in the early years of the ninth century, we find the Danish king Gudrother now making war against his Slavonic neighbors in mecklenburg Schwerin, now intriguing with them against the emperor. Mention is made of more than one town on the southern coast of the Baltic bearing an essentially Scandinavian name, pointing to the existence of extensive settlements. Interesting evidence of this eastward movement is also to be found in the life of St. Ansgar. There we learn how, soon after 830, a Danish fleet captured a city in the land of the Slavs, with great riches. And we hear in 853 how the Swedes were endeavouring to reconquer Kurland, which had been under their rule but had now thrown off the yoke and fallen a prey to a fleet of Danish Vikings, possibly the one just mentioned. St. Ansgar himself undertook the education of many Wendish youths who had been entrusted to him. This and other evidence prepare us for the establishment in the 10th century of the most characteristic of all Viking settlements, that of Jomsborg, on the island of Worlen, at the mouth of the Oder. According to tradition, King Gorm the Old conquered a great kingdom in Wendland, but it was to his son Harald Bluetooth that the definite foundation of Jomsburg was ascribed. For many years there had been an important trading center at Ulen on the island of Wallen, where traders from Scandinavia, Saxony, Russia, and many other lands met together to take part in the rich trade between north and south, east and west which passed through Eulen, standing as it did on one of the great waterways of central Europe. Large finds of Byzantine and Arabic coins bear witness to the extensive trade with Greece and the Orient, which passed through Eulen, while the Silberberg, on which Jomsburg once stood, is so called from the number of silver coins from Frisia, Lorraine, Bavaria, and England, which have been found there. It was no doubt in the hope of securing some fuller share in this trade that Harald established the great fortress of Jomsborg and entrusted his defence to a warrior community on whom he imposed the strictest rules of organisation. The story of the founding of Jomsborg is told in the late and untrustworthy joms viking Gasaga, but while we must reject many of the details there set forth, It is probable that the rules of the settlement as given there are based on a genuine tradition, and they give us a vivid picture of life in a Viking warrior community. No one under eighteen or over fifty years of age was admitted to their fellowship, and neither birth nor friendship, only personal bravery, could qualify a man for admission. No one was allowed to continue a member who uttered words of fear or who fled before one who was his equal in arms and strength. Every member was bound to avenge a fallen companion, as if he were his brother. No women were allowed within the community, and no one was to be absent for more than three days without permission. All news was to be told in the first instance to their leader, and all plunder was to be shared at a common stake. The harbour of Jomsborg could shelter a fleet of three hundred vessels, and was protected by a mole with twelve iron gates the Jomsvikings vikings played an important if stormy part in the affairs of the three scandinavian kingdoms in the later years of the tenth and the early eleventh century many of them came to england in the train of king svein while jarl thorkel was for a time in the service of ethelred the unready the decline of jomsburg as a Viking stronghold, dates from its devastation by Magnus the Good in 1043. But the importance of Juhlin as a trading centre continued, unimpaired, for many years to come. From Jomsborg, Harold Bluetooth's son, Hakon, made an attack on Samland, in the extreme east of Prussia. But the real exploitation of the eastern Baltic fell as was natural to the Swedes rather than to the Danes, we have already mentioned their presence in Kurland on the Gulf of Riga, and we learn from Swedish runic inscriptions of expeditions to Samland, to the Samgali brackets, in Kurland, and bracket, and to the River Duna. The important fortified port of Seeburg was probably near to Riga, while the chief trade route from the island of Gothland lay round Cape Domesnice, bracket, note the Scandinavian name, end bracket, to the mouth of the Duna. The chief work of the Swedes was, however, to be done in lands yet further south, in the heart of the modern empire of Russia in Europe. The story of the founding of the Russian kingdom is preserved to us in the late 10th century chronicle of the monk Nestor, who tells us that in the year 859, Varangians, came over the sea and took tribute from various Finnish, Tatar, and Slavonic peoples inhabiting the forest regions round Lake Ilmen, between Lake Ladoga and the upper waters of the Dnieper. Again he tells us that in 862 the Varangians were driven overseas and tribute was refused, but soon the tribes quarrelled among themselves, and some suggested that they should find a prince who might rule over them and keep the peace. So they sent across the sea to the Varangians, to the Rus, for such is the name of these Varangians, just as others are called Swedes, Northmen, Anglians, Goths, saying that their land was great and powerful, but there was no order within it, and asking them to come and rule over them. Three brothers with their followers were chosen. The eldest, Rurik, bracket, Old Norse, Rurikr, and bracket, settled in Novgorod, the second in bialo Zero, the third in Truvor in Isborsk. Three years later two of the brothers died and Rurik took control of the whole of the settlements, dividing the land among his men. In the same year two of Rurik's followers Askold, Bracket old Norse and bracket, and Dir, Bracket old Norse Diri and a bracket setting out for Constantinople halted at Kiev and there founded a kingdom, which in eight eighty two was conquered by Rurik's successor Oleg, bracket Old Norse Helgi, end bracket, and, as the mother of all Russian cities, became the capital of the Russian kingdom. There is a certain naivety about this story, which is characteristic of the monkish chronicler generally, and it is clear that, after the usual manner of the analyst, who is compiling his record long after the events described, Nestor has grouped together under one or two dates, events which were spread over several years. But the substantial truth of the narrative cannot be impugned, and receives abundant confirmation from various sources. The earliest evidence for the presence of these Rus in Eastern Europe is found in the story of the Byzantine embassy to the Emperor Louis the Pious in 839 when certain people called Ros, who had been on a visit to Constantinople, came in the train of the embassy and asked leave to return home through the empire. Enquiries were made, and it was found that these Ros were Swedes. This would point to the presence of Rus in Russia at a date earlier than that given by Nestor, and indeed, the rapid extension of their influence indicates a period of activity considerably longer than that allowed by him. These Rus, or Ros, soon came into relations both of trade and war with the Byzantine Empire. We have preserved to us from the years 911 and 944 commercial treaties made between the Rus and the Greeks, showing that they brought all kinds of furs and also slaves to Constantinople receiving in exchange various articles of luxury including gold and silver ornaments, silks, and other rich stuffs. The names of the signatories of these treaties are, on the side of the Rus, almost entirely of Scandinavian origin, and may to some extent be shown to be of definitely Swedish provenance. About the year 950, the emperor Constantine Porphyrogenitus writing a tractate on the administration of the empire, describes how traders from various parts of Russia assemble at Kiev and sail down the Dnieper on their way to Constantinople. Their course down the Dnieper was impeded by a series of rapids, and Constantine gives their names both in Russian and in Slavonic form. And though the names are extremely corrupt in their Greek transcription, there is no mistaking that the Russian names are really forms belonging to some Scandinavian dialect. The Rus were also well known as warriors and raiders. In 865 they sailed down the Dnieper, across the Black Sea, and made their way into the Sea of Marmora. Their fleet was dispersed by a storm, but they were more successful in 907, when Oleg, with some 2,000 ships, harried the environs of Constantinople and was bought off by a heavy tribute. These attacks were continued at intervals during the next century. We also find a good deal of interesting information about these Rus, as they are called, in various Arab historians. We hear how they sailed their vessels down the chief waterways and had such a firm hold on the Black Sea that by the year 900 it was already known as the Russian Sea. Often they dragged their vessels over land from one stream to another and thus they made their way from the upper waters of the Don, down the Volga, to the Caspian Sea. But not only do we have a description of their journeyings, we also learn a good deal of their customs and habits. And though at times the information given is open to suspicion, archaeological research tends to confirm the statements of these historians, and to show that the civilization of the Russ closely resembled that of the scandinavian peoples generally in the viking age the identification of the ancient rus with the swedes was long and hotly contested by slavonic patriots but there is now a general consensus of opinion that the evidence for it is too strong to be overthrown not only have we the evidence given above but also the very names rus and varangian can be satisfactorily explained only on this theory. The name Rus is the Slavonic *ros*, the Greek, and *ros* the Arabic form of the Finnish name for Sweden, viz. *ruotsi*. This name was originally derived from *rother* or Rothen, the name of certain districts of Uppland and Ostergotland, whose inhabitants were known as *rodskarlar* or *rodsmine*. The Finns had early come into relation with the Swedes, and they used the name of those people with whom they were in earliest and most intimate contact for the whole Swedish nationality. When these Swedes settled in Russia, the Finns applied the same term to the new colonists, and the term came to be adopted later into the various Slavonic dialects. We are most familiar with the term Varangian, or Verag to use the Slavonic form, as applied to the famous guard of the Byzantine emperors, which seems to have been formed in the latter half of the 10th century, and was largely composed of Norwegian, Icelandic, and Swedish recruits. In Russian and Arabic historians, on the other hand, the term is used rather in an ethnographic or geographic sense. We have seen that it was thus used by Nestor, and similarly we find the Baltic commonly spoken of as the Varangian Sea, both in Russian and in Arabic records. All the evidence tends to show that this was the earlier sense of the term, and we find it gradually displacing the term ros, even in Byzantine historians. The word itself is of Scandinavian origin, and means those who are bound together by a pledge. The theory which best explains its various uses is that put forward by Dr. Wilhelm Thompson, viz., that it originated among the Northmen who settled in Russia, i.e., among the ancient Rus, and that under that term they denoted those people west of the Baltic who were related to them by nationality. From the Rus the word passed into the Slavonic language as verag, into the Greek as Barangoi, where it was often used in the restricted sense of members of the imperial guard largely recruited from this nation, and into the Arabic as Varank, Dr. Thompson adduces two happy parallels for the somewhat remarkable history of the terms Russian and Varangian. The term Russian came to be used as their own name by the Slavonic peoples, who were once ruled over by the Rus, in much the same way. The term Frankish or French was adopted by the Gaulish population of France from its Germanic conquerors. The term Varangian, ultimately the name for a nation or group of nations, came to be used of a military force once largely recruited from those nations, much in the same way as the term Swiss was applied to the Papal Guard long after that guard had ceased to be recruited from the Swiss nation exclusively. The belief in the Scandinavian origin of the Rus is amply supported by archaeological evidence. The large number of Arabic coins found in Sweden, bracket more especially in Gothland, bracket, and in Russia itself, points to an extensive trade with the Orient, whose route lay chiefly to the east of the Caspian Sea, and then along the valley of the Volga. The dates of the coins point to the years between 850 and 1000, as those of most active intercourse with the East. Equally interesting is the large number of Western coins, more especially Anglo-Saxon pennies and skiats, which have been found in Russia. They probably represent portions of our Danegeld, which had come into the hands of the Swedes, either in trade or war. Viking brooches of the characteristic oval shape with the familiar zoomorphic ornamentation, have been found in western Russia, and one stone with a runic inscription, belonging to the eleventh century and showing evidence of connection with Gothland, has been found in a burial mound in Berezan, an island at the mouth of the Dnieper. Professor Braun says that no others have been found because of the rarity of suitable stone. How long the Rus maintained their distinctively Scandinavian nationality it is difficult to determine. Orleg's grandson, Sviatoslav, bore a distinctively Slavonic name, and henceforward the names of the members of the royal house are uniformly Slavonic. But the connection with Sweden was by no means forgotten. Sviatoslav's son, Vladimir the Great, secured himself in the rulership of Novgorod in 980, the aid of Variags from over the sea, and established a band of Veriag warriors in the chief city of Kiev. But the Viking Age was drawn to a close. Veriag auxiliaries are mentioned for the last time in 1043, and it is probable that by the middle of the 11th century the Scandinavian settlers had been almost completely Slavonicized. Of their permanent influence on the Russian people, and on Russian institutions it is, in the present state of our knowledge, almost impossible to speak. Attempts have been made to distinguish Scandinavian elements in the old Russian law and language, but with no very definite results. And we must content ourselves with the knowledge that the Vikings were all-powerful in western and southern Russia during the greater part of two centuries, carrying on an extensive trade with the East, establishing Novgorod, the new town, on the Volga, under the name Holmgarther, and founding a dynasty which ruled in Kiev, and became a considerable power in Eastern Europe, negotiating on terms of equality with the Byzantine emperors. Mention has already been made, more than once, of the way in which the Northmen entered the service of the emperors of Constantinople, or Miklagarther, the great city, as they called it. From here they visited all parts of the Mediterranean. When Harold Hardrada was in the service of the emperor, he sailed through the Grecian archipelago to Sicily and Africa. There he stayed several years, conquering some 80 cities for his master, and gaining rich treasures for himself. One interesting memorial of these journeys still remains to us. At the entrance to the Arsenal in Venice stands a marble lion, brought from Athens in 1687. Formerly it stood at the harbor of the Piraeus, known thence as the Porto León. On the sides of the lion are carved two long runic inscriptions arranged in snake-like bands. The runes are too much worn to be deciphered, but they are unquestionably of Scandinavian origin, and the snake bands closely resemble those that may be seen on certain runic stones in Sweden. The carving was probably done by Swedes from Upland about the middle of the 10th century. One can hardly imagine a more striking illustration of the extent and importance of the Viking movement in Europe. End of chapter 7